Thursday, March 24th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, President Joe Biden said to announce a package of Russia-related sanctions on political figures and oligarchs. But some argue NATO must take on more risk now or face a far greater threat if Russia succeeds in capturing Ukraine. Shock and disappointment in Afghanistan as the Taliban closes schools to girls above the sixth grade. The girls went to school, others were stopped outside school building, and they were told that there is a new directive issued by the Taliban leadership that girls will have to remain at home. And a female MP is killed in a suicide bombing in central Somalia. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the United States will announce a package of Russia-related sanctions on political figures and oligarchs on Thursday, while U.S. President Joe Biden meets with NATO leaders. Sullivan says G7 leaders will also agree on Thursday to coordinate on sanctions and enforcement. These, as NATO leaders meet in Brussels for an extraordinary summit on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As Henry Ridgewell reports from NATO headquarters, calls are growing for the West to take stronger military action in support of Ukraine. The civilian toll of Russia's invasion grows by the day. If the killing continues, the West will have a moral obligation to get involved, says Fabrice Potier, a former head of policy planning at NATO. We could prevent those, those massacres and those possible deaths if NATO were to be willing to actually take on a little bit more risk. What could that risk involve? Potier says NATO could effectively blockade Russia. I think we should control uh, more access on, on the Baltic and the Black Seas, especially the Baltic is uh, critical to, to Russian trade. 70% of, of Russia's trade go via the Baltic. Obviously, they will not uh, let that happen easily, but I think we are geared, we have the plans, we have the capabilities to do so. NATO should play Russia at its own game, says Potier. We can do also much more in terms of basically cyber operation. And so uh, the, the hybrid type warfare, which uh, uh, Putin has been associated with for some years, but where actually we also have assets. And, and in order to disrupt, actually, again, the, the Putin war machine. U.S. President Joe Biden last week announced an additional $800 million in security assistance for Ukraine, including Stinger anti-aircraft systems and armed drones. Former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Kurt Volker, also the U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations until 2019, says more weapons are needed. More air defense systems, including those that operate at higher altitudes. More shore-to-ship systems to take out uh, some of the Russian naval ships in the Black Sea. I do believe that the MiG-29s and other fighter aircraft should be provided. We're, we're not quite there yet. Uh, I understand the arguments against a no-fly zone, but I think we should uh, not take it off the table. Volker says the supply of military equipment to Ukraine needs improved coordination. And NATO could provide something of a clearinghouse function, and it could provide an assurance of delivery by creating a, a, a safe place for that in Poland and ensuring that it arrives successfully in Ukraine. 
Western leaders fear any escalation could lead to direct confrontation between NATO and Russian forces and a conflict between nuclear armed powers. But some argue NATO must take on more risk now or face a far greater threat if Russia succeeds in capturing Ukraine. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News at NATO headquarters in Brussels. The arrival this week in a Turkish port of two super yachts belonging to a Russian oligarch is drawing attention to Turkey's policy of refusing to impose sanctions on Russia. As Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, the yacht's arrival is stoking concerns Turkey is becoming a safe haven for those seeking to circumvent sanctions. A small protest group of Ukrainians greeted the arrival of a large yacht belonging to Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich. The billion-dollar vessel was joined a day later by a second owned by Abramovich at the Turkish Aegean resort of Bodrum, a popular playground for the world's super-rich. With Abramovich under sanctions by both the European Union and Britain, his yachts have found sanctuary in Turkey, which refuses to enforce sanctions against Russians. The arrival of Abramovich's vessels in Turkey adds the suspicions that the country could become a refuge for sanctioned oligarchs and their wealth, says analyst Atilya Shalada of Global Source Partners. There is a lot of news, unsubstantiated in my view, that oligarchs are parking their money in Turkey. Turkey has extensive business links, no matter how you define it, with Russia. But I'm fairly sure that the West is aware of that and the monitoring of Turkish banks' transactions with the West is going to be scrutinized very carefully. Turkish media is awash with reports that Abramovich plans to use Turkey as a base. Some reports say the oligarch is buying a Turkish football team. Abramovich invested heavily in London's Chelsea Soccer Club before being forced to give up ownership before it would be seized by British authorities. Timothy Ash of Blue Jay Asset Management says Turkey is likely to face growing scrutiny from its Western allies. There is concern about state-owned banks maybe and whether uh, the Turkish state would see this as opportunity to arbitrage some of the difficulties uh, Russian entities may be having because of sanctions. I would imagine, you know, Western governments, including the US, will be talking with their Turkish counterparts and, and trying to encourage them not to help Russia in terms of breaking sanctions. But it's a recognition, I think, of, of Turkey's relatively weak financial position. But Ankara insists it's fulfilling its international obligations in enforcing United Nations sanctions. And it claims that financial and economic measures against Moscow are counterproductive. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan argues that his country's refusal to join sanctions enables it to be an honest broker in efforts to end the Ukraine conflict. Erdogan has close ties with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. Doreen Jones of EOA News, Istanbul. The World Food Programme warns hunger is likely to increase in Haiti as the war in Ukraine causes the price of imported wheat to rise. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. A recent UN food assessment in Haiti finds 45% of the population, or 4.5 million people, are facing acute hunger, with 1.5 million in need of emergency assistance. The World Food Program attributes the rising levels of hunger to persistent political instability, growing inflation, and recurrent disasters. They include last August's devastating earthquake, which killed thousands of people and affected nearly 1 million people. 
Additionally, the WFP notes below average rainfall last year resulted in a poor harvest, while people in northern Haiti are still reeling from the aftermath of heavy flooding in late January. WFP country director in Haiti, Pierre Honora, says his agency fears the war in Ukraine will raise the price of food and increase hunger in Haiti. Speaking from the capital, Port-au-Prince, he notes Haiti imports about 70% of its food. He says wheat is mainly imported from Russia and Canada, noting wheat flour is used to bake the bread that is consumed by Haitians every day. This is the first meal of the day of every Haitian. So if the wheat flour is going up, you will see a problem. And as I say, the price has already multiplied by five in two years. So what we can only expect is that it will multiply again. And this is a big issue. Onova says people who are faced with extreme hunger are forced to engage in punishing coping mechanisms to put food on the table. He says that heightens the risk of sexual exploitation and other abuse. Everything about those coping mechanisms that the population has has to go for, and uh, it's di- different. They have to change their, their diet, they have to reduce their meals, but it also brings them to violence. It also leads some of them to prostitution. The UN Children's Fund says about 217,000 Haitian children under the age of five are acutely malnourished. It warns more than 86,000 suffering from severe acute malnutrition could die if they do not receive timely life-saving therapeutic treatment. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. U.S. Special Representative and Deputy Assistant Secretary for Afghanistan, Thomas West, has expressed, quote, shock and deep disappointment, unquote, over the decision by Afghanistan's Taliban rulers against reopening schools to girls above the sixth grade. Analysts say the move reneges on a promise made the international community about respecting the rights of women and girls. West said the Taliban had made it clear that all Afghans have a right to education and urged them to, quote, live up to their commitments to their people, unquote. Wahidullah Hashmi, the external relations and donor representative, with the Taliban-led administration, told the Associated Press the decision was made late Tuesday night. For more, I spoke with VOA's Ayaz Gal on the confusing messages coming from top Taliban leadership on the decision. There was total confusion because we have had clear announcements from the Taliban education ministry that the schools in most provinces in Afghanistan will reopen from March 23rd. And so there was a lot of excitement even among the media people and uh, Western observers that it's a big day for Afghanistan to that they would see girls uh, going back to school after many, many months. But it was shocking that uh, the girls uh, in Kabul and elsewhere went to school. Others were stopped outside school building and they were told that there is a new directive issued by the Taliban leadership that girls will have to remain at home until further notice and until a new plan is drawn up in line with Islamic law so that girls can receive education according to Islam and according to Afghan traditions. It appears there's some kind of a power struggle going on within the leadership of the Taliban between the hardliners and the moderates. But the people of Afghanistan are suffering over this, of course, the humanitarian disaster and crisis. How does this help the Taliban? 
it's certainly not helpful for the Taliban, especially to their cause of, you know, urging the international community to recognize their interim government in Kabul. It is certainly not helpful and it is even going to create now more problems for this Islamist group to seek assistance, especially humanitarian assistance, larger way because this country has been suffering because of war, because of a persistent drought. And really, it's a poverty-stricken nation that needs assistance, but uh, people are confused and really don't understand why would Taliban come up with this kind of a shocking decision just because of their internal differences over whether women should go and seek education or not. Nearly 40 million people have been suffering and are suffering, and they will continue to suffer because of uh, this humanitarian crisis facing the country and economic upheavals they are facing since the Taliban have taken over the country seven months ago. So we don't know for sure whether the power struggle is gripping this Taliban movement or whether they really intend to create a serious environment for female students to go back to schools. It is really not clear. It's difficult to read their mindset. But when you look at the different statements that different Taliban officials gave, but then we see the main directive, which the Taliban said was issued by their supreme leader, Hebatullah Ahunzada, clearly stated that there's a lack of arrangements in line with the Islamic law and Afghan traditions inside school buildings in Afghanistan, which have forced them to delay the reopening of schools for girl students. Across the border in Pakistan, how is this decision being received? Well, Pakistan really has been advocating more assistance for the Taliban-led Afghanistan and more economic cooperation by Pakistani leadership. Even there was a huge conference of Muslim countries in Pakistan, in Islamabad yesterday, and Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan once again urged the world community to help Afghanistan, to help its people to overcome this humanitarian crisis. Obviously, whatever happened today was not received well in Pakistan. We see criticism even in local media here that Taliban promised repeatedly meetings with Pakistani leaders and also on uh, international platforms recently that they will reopen schools, but not reopening them to female students definitely is an embarrassment for the Pakistani government. That's VOS Ayaz Gaw speaking with me from Islamabad. Since the Taliban have taken control of Afghanistan, many Afghan women activists have sought refuge in Peshawar, Pakistan. These women said they are concerned about their future. Muska Safi visited some of these women in Peshawar, Pakistan, and has this story narrated by Nazrana Yusuzai. Most Afghan refugees call Peshawar their second home. This is where millions of Afghan refugees escaping the war in their country took refuge over the past four decades. Now, a new wave of refugees fleeing the Taliban's harsh rule is coming to the city. Afghan rights activist Speseli Sasei is one of the women who uprooted in the face of intolerable restrictions. Because I do not have a man in my family, and we are a family of four women, we could not work. We were not allowed to travel from one place to another, even in a car. Therefore, we fled Afghanistan and came here. 
since seizing power in August 2021, the Taliban have imposed strict restrictions on women, including their freedom of movement, prompting outcries from international rights groups. Fearing for her safety, 21-year-old Marwa Umari took a land route to Peshawar after an unsuccessful attempt to leave Afghanistan by air. We tried to be evacuated from the airport in August, but there were some problems, and we were forced to leave very late at night and take refuge in Pakistan. Pakistan hosts around 1.4 million registered Afghan refugees. Some of the newly arrived refugees in Pakistan say life in Pakistan is also very hard. The UNHCR reported in January that more than 300,000 Afghans have fled to Pakistan since the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. For Muska Safi in Peshawar, this is Nazrana Yousafzai, VON News. In other news, Somali female lawmaker is among several people killed in two explosions in the central Somali town of Beladouin Wednesday evening, witnesses said. Amina Mohamed Abdi was campaigning for re-election in her constituency. There are conflicting reports on what caused the explosion. One account says a suicide bomber ran towards her and detonated a vest, but a second account said the explosion was from a device already planted at the scene. As the wounded were evacuated, a second explosion went off, causing more casualties. Residents say they expect the death toll to increase. President Mohammed Abdullahi Famajo sent condolences to the family, say she was murdered in an explosion by, quote, merciless terrorists, unquote. The Al-Shabaab militant group claimed responsibility for the attack. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chine Duafo in Washington. Eight agencies working in East Africa, one of a massive humanitarian crisis, if the coming rainy season falls short of expectations. The aid groups say persistent drought has left 44 million people in urgent need of assistance across Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, and South Sudan. Mohamed Yusuf reports. Millions of people are on the move in East Africa as drought takes their livelihoods and most are forced to flee their homes in search of food and water. Francesco Rigamotti is the regional humanitarian coordinator for Oxfam, Horn, East and Central Africa. He says if nothing is done, the situation is poised to get worse in coming weeks. The crisis can actually worsen until and beyond June. If the March to May rains will be average or below average, there is a concrete possibility that in Kenya, Somalia and Ethiopia only, phase and above. And unfortunately, the experts are telling us that in South Sudan already, between May and July, 8.3 million people will be in this situation. The aid agencies use the IPC scale to classify household food insecurity. IPC phase 3 means the households have food consumption gaps that can lead to acute malnutrition. Since January, at least 13 million people in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia have been displaced in search of water and pastures for their livestock. In Kenya, crop production has dropped by 70%. Oxfam International Head Gabriela Butcher traveled to Somali region to witness the drought situation and what it is doing to people. She says communities are finding it difficult to adapt to the changes in weather patterns. 
For centuries, pastoralists have been extremely resilient and, and incredible coping mechanisms in very harsh conditions. But the current situation, the severity of the droughts and the long extension and how many countries are, are affected is breaking those traditional coping mechanisms. And in reality, we see that the climate crisis is present there and they're suffering the worst consequences of something that did almost nothing to generate. So we know this is an issue of, of justice because it's us, the global community, that needs to be, to be aware and respond. The aid agencies say more than 650,000 Somalis have fled their homes due to drought, leaving almost half of the children under the age of five acutely malnourished. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. New Zealand says it plans to scrap some of its controversial vaccination mandates under sweeping changes to COVID-19 rules. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said it was, quote, a new beginning, unquote, for the country, despite a recent surge in Omicron infections. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. Mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations will end next month for teachers, police officers and members of New Zealand's military. Opposition to compulsory vaccine shots did provoke noisy and at times violent demonstrations for three weeks outside the parliament in Wellington. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said Wednesday in Wellington that expert advice and an expectation that the current wave of Omicron cases will soon pass and not the protests had prompted the change in policy. However, workers in the health sector, those caring for the elderly and the prison sector must continue to be double vaccinated. Today, 95% of eligible New Zealanders are fully vaccinated. The government believes high rates of vaccination and increasing natural immunity to COVID-19 will help to protect New Zealanders. Some believe the move might be occurring too soon. Michael Baker is an epidemiologist at the University of Otago. He said winding back pandemic restrictions, including mask mandates and increasing capacity limits for cafes and restaurants, could cause a second Omicron wave. Despite such warnings, Ardern said some vaccine mandates will end on April 4. The government will not require mandates to be in place for education, police and defence workers. We will continue their use for health, aged care workers, corrections staff and border and MIQ workers. The rationale in each case is clear. These are either workers supporting our most vulnerable or they work in high-risk environments where spread would be rapid or the exposure to new variants is high. New Zealand's international borders, which were closed more than two years ago, will start to reopen in three weeks' time. Australians will be permitted to enter without needing to quarantine or isolate from April 13. Double vaccinated tourists from about 60 countries, including Britain and the United States, will follow in early May. New Zealand has a population of about 5 million. It's had some of the world's toughest coronavirus restrictions. The government has recorded 538,000 COVID-19 infections and 184 deaths since the pandemic began. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. 
Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Next up, the status of the conflict in Yemen. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine dominates headlines, the war in Yemen rages into its eighth year. Two analysts examine why peace talks continue to stall, the roles of Iran and Saudi Arabia in broadening the conflict, and the possibility of a truce during the holy month of Ramadan. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at vonews.com until next time i am chinedorf in washington wishing you a great day